Hey, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. I loved Brandon's prayer, make us more like Jesus, yes? That really is our heart's desire, our heart's cry here at IBC. Make us more like Jesus. Part of the way we do that is through the study of God's Word. So um, if you got out of the house without a Bible this morning and you would like a Bible, just stick your hand up way up high and Charlie will make sure to put a Bible in your hands and I'll invite all of us to, with those Bibles, head for the book of First Peter. In the New Testament, near the very end of your Bible, you'll find the book of First Peter waiting for you there, and we'll go to chapter 1 together. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. looks like this. If you'll grab that out of your bulletin, uh, that would be a great thought. And if I could ask you, as you're pulling that little note page out, to take a closer look at it, because you'll notice that I have titled our study together today, How Great a Salvation! Exclamation point. How great a salvation. And our focus is going to be on verses 10 through 12 together today. If you've been part of most of our morning since we started this series, then you might be aware of how much the subject of salvation, our salvation, has been on Peter's heart in these opening verses. And there's a reason why that is true. Peter wrote this letter originally, if you recall, to first century Christians that he calls in verse 1 exiles of dispersion or, or maybe your version says scattered aliens. And he calls the recipients of his letter this because these Christians are experiencing ridicule and slander and rejection and false accusations and the like from their former friends and neighbors and, and even family members. And they're experiencing this simply because they have determined to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have become spiritual exiles in their own country. In some places, the persecution has become uh, even more intense, resulting in loss of community, loss of jobs, perhaps confiscation of property, imprisonment, and in some cases, even death for Jesus' sake. Of course, it hasn't helped the Christians either that Emperor Nero back in the capital city of Rome is blaming all Christians for the burning of Rome in mid-A.D. 64. He's blaming the Christians for that. And so here in early 65 A.D., these Christians are living in a really hostile world. Their culture, their towns, their neighborhoods have become unpredictable, dangerous places for them where persecution for Jesus' sake is not the exception, it's the rule. It's more of the norm. So Peter's writing these brothers and sisters to encourage them in the struggle and to prepare them for even perhaps more severe testing of their faith that could come. And so in the opening section of his letter, it's little wonder that Peter would focus on the theme of salvation. Though he doesn't say it precisely like this, what Peter says is that no matter how difficult it might get, no matter how bad it might get, no matter how painful the rejection could be, no matter how severe the persecution could turn, a Christian can always find sanctuary and solace and security and comfort and confidence and the courage to stand if they remain anchored in the harbor of the great salvation 
that Jesus has won for them through the cross and through the resurrection. That full final rescue from sin's penalty, from Satan, from eternal separation from God in hell, has because God has graciously chosen to give them that through faith in Jesus, that can never be taken away, Peter would say, no matter how desperate, no matter how difficult or severe the times for a Christian might be. You'll always have your salvation. And so he makes that a theme. In verses 1 through 10, the celebration of our great salvation is one of those major themes. Peter's celebrating salvation. And there are times throughout the 21 centuries that the church has been in existence when there has been little else to celebrate than one's salvation. There are places in the world right now where Salvation truth is all that some Christians have to hold on to. And we, church family, we would be foolish to assume that the day will never come when persecution and suffering for Jesus' sake could be the norm in our own culture. We'd be foolish to think that that could never be the case, that that persecution for Jesus' sake would be the norm. The one sure anchor in those times is our salvation. Would you agree with that? Salvation. What, what, a, what a word. Is there any word in the English language as blessed as this word? Salvation. Any word as hopeful as this word? As hope-filled as this word? Any word in the English language as comforting or as safe or as assuring? as the word salvation. It is the great theme of all of Scripture. Sinners can be saved. Amen. That's right. In fact, that really deserves a larger, louder amen than what you just did. Sinners can be saved. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Absolutely. Back up in verse 1, Peter reminded his readers that though they might be rejected by their culture, They must remember that they've been chosen. They've been elected by God himself. And they need to remember that though their town maybe hates them, in verse 3, God has poured out his mercy, his love upon them. Though their community might view them as dead, Peter says, you need to remember, you've been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, your Savior who has risen from the dead. In verse 4, though the authorities might strip you of of all of your earthly possessions, you need to remember that you have an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, and it's being kept for you in heaven by God himself. You need to remember that. And because of their faith in Jesus alone for salvation, their love for him, their, 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 their desire for him, Peter says you need to, you're experiencing right now a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Remember we talked about it? It's joy on steroids. Remember that? Because of this great salvation that you have. Obtaining, he says at the end of verse 9, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter uses this word salvation in verse 5. He uses it in verse 9. And now he's going to use it again at the beginning of verse 10. I detect a theme here. 
Verse 10. New verses for us, verses 10 through 12 today. Here's how it reads. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We're going to stop right there. Peter says, no matter how dark it gets, suffering Christian, no matter how hostile the world may get, it can never take away your great salvation, ever. And here he then unfolds four more truths about this salvation that makes it so great. Just as a way of helping them in the first century and us in the 21st, to cherish our salvation even more. And that would be my prayer for us today, brothers and sisters, is that we would, after, after spending time in this section, we would leave cherishing and, and, and valuing our salvation even more than maybe we did when we walked in the doors this morning. So on your note page, this great salvation, you'll notice, was studied diligently by the Old Testament prophets. And if you flip your page over, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was proclaimed by the New Testament apostles. And it is even now the intense focus of the angels in heaven. That these four different entities should be so deeply devoted to salvation's truth should further affirm to our own hearts its greatness. And that's Peter's thinking. It would, make it, more, it would make us more thankful than ever that it indeed is our salvation. It's great. Peter says concerning this salvation, verse 10, the salvation of our souls mentioned by him at the end of verse 9, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully. Inquiring what person, what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Stop right there. Peter's referring, of course, to who? The Old Testament prophets. Are we all on the same page? Yeah, right. And he says that, liter- that they literally studied, these Old Testament prophets literally studied their own prophetic writings to know all that they could about a salvation that was coming from God. That's what they studied. Now, now think about that for just a second. Of all the truth that might have been studied by the Old Testament prophets, why would they be so preoccupied with this topic, salvation from God? Why? Well, I think the answer is pretty straightforward. It's because this is the theme of the universe. This this is it, the salvation that God has provided for sinners. That's the theme of the universe. Why wouldn't they study it? At this particular point in time on this this little dust ball called the earth, this is the greatest truth that anybody can know. God saves sinners. Yeah, yeah, God saves sinners. Of all the, the truth that the prophets received through 
divine revelation to speak or to write down. This was their passion. They wanted to understand God's salvation. From Moses to Malachi, from Genesis to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophets spoke for God, but their gaze was always on the the topic of salvation. Notice the words in verse 10, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. These Old Testament mouthpieces for God, living in a time before Bibles, they told people about the grace of God. And what is grace? Well, grace is God's undeserved blessing. Grace is God's unearned favor. Grace is is unmerited love. God's forgiving goodness, His kindness towards sinners, not based on anything that the sinner does, but on everything that God desires to do for the sinner. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. They were fascinated to know that God had promised a salvation by grace that would reach out to the whole world. Not to the Jewish world only, but to all people everywhere in the world. Is there a verse that comes to mind when you think about the grace of God? How about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Can we read that verse right off the screen together? Can we do that? Let's do it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen and amen. The Old Testament prophets spoke about this grace, and they wrote about this grace that would save sinners, but they didn't understand clearly or fully how God could do this. Because God in His wisdom and in His own predetermined plan, He had determined to reveal His saving grace plans over many centuries and through many different prophets. No one prophet got the whole big picture. The prophets knew the grace of God would be manifested through a person, a singular, unique person, a Messiah, a deliverer, one who would be more than a man but would be fully man, They knew he would suffer terribly. The prophets knew this. Verse 11, they predicted this, says Peter. The the one who would come would suffer. And though they did not see how this terrible suffering could fit into a salvation plan, they knew that this Messiah would eventually triumph. He would win. He would be victorious. He would know future glories. And he would save people for God. Now, how did they know all of this? They read and studied their own writings. That's what Peter says. They could see salvation by grace almost everywhere they looked in their own writings. For example, there on your note page, they could see salvation by grace in the sad record of the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. It's a terrible moment. Sin enters our world. Sin enters our lives, our hearts. And God, what does he do? He graciously covers the shame of their rebellion, Adam and Eve's rebellion, through the death of innocent animals. You remember this? He clothes Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. Death covering the shame brought about by sin. What is that? That's grace. 
It's right there in the opening chapters of our Bibles. And the prophets would have known this. God saves Noah and his family from certain destruction by means of a great boat, an ark. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, God carries Noah and his family through the waters of judgment because of something that Noah did. No, because God wanted to do that. He wanted to do that. What is that? That's grace. In Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a man. His name is Abraham. Promises that through this one man, he's going to bring one into the world who will bless all peoples everywhere. Referring, of course, to Jesus. The promise of a person who would bring salvation. What is that? That's grace. In Genesis 22, God provides an offering that spares Abraham from killing his son Isaac. God brings an offering, a substitute. But then God, who does that graciously for Abraham, doesn't do that for himself. He, in fact, offers his own son on a cross on Calvary. What is this? This is grace. In the Passover, we see salvation foreshadowed as as Israel is spared death and judgment by placing their lives under the blood of an innocent lamb in Exodus chapter 12. You remember this moment? What is that? That's grace. In Numbers 21, death is averted for Israel's people if they will look at a bronze serpent that has been raised up on a pole. And Jesus says about that in John chapter 3 that that was a picture of him. That was a picture pointing to him being raised up on a cross and all who would look to Jesus would be what? Saved. What is that? That's grace. In Job chapter 19, verse 25, our suffering Job says, For I know that my Redeemer, my Savior lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. A prophetic word telling about the glories, the triumphs of a suffering Messiah. In Psalm 22, 900 years before the cross, details of the crucifixion are supplied to us. And a graphic picture of the suffering of Jesus is preserved for us in Isaiah chapter 53. In the experience of the Old Testament prophet Jonah, we have a foreshadowing of the resurrection glory of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus looks back to Noah or to Jonah and he says, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. So too the Son of Man will be three days in the earth. And then what? Rise from the dead. And so the Old Testament prophets, they they carefully searched all of these and scores more of uh, these spirit-imparted writings trying to ascertain who the Savior would be and when he would come, who he was and the time of his coming. They received special revelation but not a full understanding of how salvation would be accomplished. And here's an interesting little sidebar for those of you who who track with this sort of thing. I find it interesting. John the Baptist, widely considered by many to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. Church family, he is a classic illustration of the heart, the thinking, the mind of an Old Testament prophet. You know the the thing John wanted more than anything else to know? He wanted to know who is the Messiah and 
has he come? That's what he wanted to know. That's what all the Old Testament prophets wanted to know. Has salvation come? And so in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, this is on your note page, by the way, we read these words. Now, when John heard, he's in prison, he's been arrested by, by Herod. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, that's the word for Messiah, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? Are you him? Or shall we look for another? And in response to this question from from John's disciples, Jesus gives his credentials. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news. That's the gospel. They have good news preached to them. Tell John that. And maybe the disciples said, well, why would we tell him that? And Jesus would say, because all of that fulfills Old Testament prophecies about me. And he will know that I am him. Just tell him that. And so the Old Testament prophets looked into their own writings, their own prophecies, to try and identify who and when Messiah would come and how salvation would be accomplished. But only John really got the answer. None of the rest did. All those faithful ancients never grasped how salvation was going to be accomplished. What did they understand about their role? Well, Peter says, they were serving us. They weren't serving themselves when they preserved those Old Testament scriptures for us. They were laying the foundation for us so that we would understand our salvation in all of its breadth, in all of its beauty. Their work was for us. And how grateful we are for that. Peter's point, we have a great salvation How great it must be if it was the preoccupying study of all of the ancient prophets. And if they're so concerned about it, so thrilled by it, so desirous of plunging deeper and deeper and fully understanding it, then how precious should our salvation be to us, brothers and sisters? That's his point. How precious should it be to us? Do we realize truly that Generation after generation and century after century, those prophets longed to know what you and I practically take for granted. How blessed we are to live in the time we do. How great a salvation. Jesus says this in Matthew thirteen seventeen. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. How great a salvation. Diligently studied by the prophets, but also revealed to us, if you flip your note page over, revealed to us by none other than the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself as peter exhorts his his readers to hold on to their salvation in the heat of intense 
spiritual battles and persecution. He says, don't forget that this great salvation is the Holy Spirit's preeminent theme. It's what he talks about all the time. Here in verse 11, again in verse 12, Peter gives a crucial insight into these Bibles that you and I are holding in our laps right now. All of their revelation was supernaturally imparted by whom? By the Holy Spirit. By the third person of the Godhead. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Everything the Old Testament writers recorded, they received from who? The Holy Spirit. Everything the New Testament writers revealed and and wrote down that you and I cherish and and read today, they received all of that from who? The Holy Spirit. It's all sourced in God. We have the heart, the mind, the thoughts of the living God on printed pages. Well, I guess today it could also be on Gorilla Glass, but you get the point. We have God's heart on the printed page. Thanks to the Holy Spirit. How awesome is that? And then don't miss those two little words in verse 11. In them. The Spirit of Christ in them. The Trinity is such a unity that the Holy Spirit can actually be called the Spirit of Christ by Peter. One yet three. A glorious mystery to be sure. But notice the words in them or within them. Maybe your version says the Holy Spirit took up resident in those Old Testament writers and those New Testament writers. And that's why Second Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 there on your note page. Two of the most important verses about our Bibles reads like this. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by who? By the Holy Spirit. In other words, the resident spirit in them inspired them to write about salvation. With every beat of God's heart, this is the theme we hear on the pages of our Bibles. A great salvation, a great salvation, a great salvation over and over again. Steady, unrelenting, never changing. And salvation's message always contains the same two elements. Peter refers to them, the suffering of Jesus and the glory of Jesus. The suffering of Jesus, it's necessary because as Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Jesus must suffer. Blood atones for sin. Jesus, righteous blood, atones for your sin and my sin. His suffering satisfies the justice of a holy God. So suffering must be part of the salvation story that is so great. But the suffering must turn to triumph. It has to turn eventually to glory for Jesus or else he's a savior with good intentions, but he fails. And so the Holy Spirit inspires the writers of Scripture to describe the subsequent glories, the glories that would follow. What glories? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. His body would not see corruption. The writer, the the, the, the Old Testament prophet said, Psalm 1610, that Jesus would not see corruption. What glories? Jesus, enthronement as the king. 
The prophets wrote about a child who would become the king and the government would rest on his shoulders, Isaiah chapter 9. And he would be a great king, the greatest king, the king of kings, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Zechariah chapter 14. The prophets wrote about the glory and they wrote about the suffering and all of it inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it is a great salvation because that's true. Amen? None of this was overlooked by Jesus, by the way. There's a really beautiful moment that happens after Jesus rises from the dead. It's recorded by Luke in Luke 24. On the, on the first Easter Sunday, Jesus has risen from the dead. And he encounters two of his followers on a road, the road to Emmaus. Are you familiar with this moment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, these two disciples of Jesus, they don't recognize him in his resurrection glory and they're devastated by the crucifixion of their lord they don't know jesus has risen from the dead and so they have this conversation eventually the jesus shares a meal with these disciples and here's what we read verses 25 to 27 luke 24 and jesus said to them "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the what the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the christ should What's the next word? Suffer these things and enter into his glory. The two themes of salvation. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Oh, would you not have loved to have been one of those two guys? Oh, and be personally taught by Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. Suffering, glory, suffering, glory, always the theme, always the theme, because that's salvation's great theme. And that theme was the theme of the prophets, diligently studied, because it was the theme of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Check this out, church, Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these people, all these Old Testament prophets were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them. And welcomed them from a distance. Aren't you glad that they did? Why didn't they receive what God was placing on their hearts to write about? Because Peter says in verse 12, they were serving not themselves, but who? Us. Us. Oh, what a great salvation. Great, says Peter as well. Because it was the message proclaimed by the apostles. Again, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the... What's the next two words? The good news. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. To you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The things announced, again are the suffering of Jesus, the salvation of uh, our salvation through his death and resurrection. They preached this, the apostles did, by the power of the Holy Spirit within them. That was their message. And now that salvation story, well, it's fully known now. Now we know the who, we know the why, we know the, how, the, the when, and we know uh, how all of this is going to happen. What a great salvation. 
And here's how the Apostle Paul sees himself as one of these New Testament apostles proclaiming the message of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are therefore Christ's... What's the next word? Ambassadors. We're Christ's messengers. As though God were making His appeal through us. It's our mouth, but it's God's words. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's a call for salvation. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Is that not the gospel? That is the gospel in a single verse. Chapter 6, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For He says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day. Of salvation. We say amen. And amen. The apostles preached the Jesus of the cross. They preached the Jesus of the empty tomb. They preached belief in Jesus as the means whereby a sinner can become righteous in God's sight. Salvation, a great salvation, was their message, and it was their only message. Friends, brothers and sisters, we have that message now, don't we? It's ours. The apostles, the first proclaimers of the full revelation of Jesus, they passed off the scene, and now it is our turn. Do you believe that? It's our turn. We are Christ's ambassadors today. As though God were making His appeal through us. And today it is still what kind of day? The day of salvation. Church family, last Sunday, there was a a practical suggestion put before all of us by me. And I I just urged each of us to take a moment and ask God to give us one soul this last week that we could have a spiritual conversation with, one soul that in this moment doesn't have a Savior. And so I asked us to pray that God would give us that one person and we could have that conversation. Just wondered, did did you do that? Did you ask God for that soul? Were you able to have that conversation? And if that hasn't happened, would you recommit to do that this week? To pray for that one soul. Lord, give me that one conversation. Let me be the messenger, the ambassador through which you would make your appeal to such a person. uh, Paul says it this way in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, the salvation truth, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. May we be bold, brothers and sisters, not ashamed, for indeed now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Do you believe it? I believe it. Lastly, here in Peter, what consumed the study of the ancient apostles, what was the constant inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the bold message of the apostles was also, Peter says, the intense focus of the angels. Verse 12, things into which angels long to look. Things, salvation things. The angels long to look into salvation 
Peter says to suffering Christians who love and have put their faith in Jesus, never lose sight of just how great your salvation is. It is so great that even the angels can't get enough of it. That's what he says. Have you ever wished you could be an angel? You ever wished you could be an angel? Even, and even for a short time, just a short time. Have you ever thought, how cool would it be to fly like the angels fly? And to be able to fly through anything, right? You, 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 wouldn't, be, you wouldn't even have to worry about walls. You just do your thing. And how, how cool would it be to, to be good all the time? And how, to sneak up on people and do good things for them. That's what angels do, right? To be in the presence of God. Have you, have you ever wondered what it would be like to see what angels see in the spiritual dimension that's not visible to us? To see what they see. Have you ever wondered what that would be like? Have you ever wondered what it would be like for, for angels to battle demons in a realm that is, is such a mystery to us? An invisible world that's just as real as ours, but not seen with physical eyes. Have you ever wondered what it would be like for to be part of that angelic world and to experience the eternal holiness that an angel experiences? What would that be like? And then I would ask you, brothers and sisters, to remember this. The angels think the same way about you. They wonder about your life. More importantly, they wonder about your salvation. What is salvation like in a sinner's life? I wonder what it's like to be saved from an eternity separated from the Father because of sin. I wonder what it's like to receive grace. I wonder what it's like to be forgiven and to know that you've been bought by the God of the universe with the blood of his son. What does that feel like? An angel might ask. Here's heaven's angels. They want to know. They want to understand our salvation. And they long to understand it and to look into it. That word long that Peter uses in the end of verse 12, that's a word that means to have an overpowering impulse, an intense passion, a deep desire. This is not some kind of a, a momentary casual interest. Hey, you know, I'm kind of interested in this salvation thing that's going on down on earth. No. No, this, this is a strong, powerful, intense, ongoing, never satisfied hunger to understand our salvation. And the word look, well, that means to strain or stretch your neck in order to see. That's the word. And so think of a small child at the kitchen counter, and they've got their, their fingers on the edge of the counter, and they're... They're, they're, they're on their tippy toes and all they can do is just get their eyes over the top of the counter to see what, what mom's doing, right? That's the word look. It's that. And that's what the angels are doing. That's how they're looking at your salvation. On tippy toes, stretching their neck. It's the exact same word that John uses to refer to Peter and John running to the tomb of Jesus and bending down low and looking into that empty tomb on Easter morning to see what was there or not there. They're straining to see. 
The angels want to stoop down, get down low, and look into this thing called our salvation. They have a driving passion to understand it. Why? Because they'll never experience it. They will never experience it. The holy angels don't need to be saved. The fallen angels can't be saved. They're never going to know what it means to be saved by God. They're stooping down and they're peering into the reality of our salvation. Is that not incredible? The holy angels have been involved in our salvation from the beginning. They announced Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. They, they, they cared for Jesus in the wilderness temptations as he prepared for his ministry. They were present at Jesus' resurrection in the garden tomb. They attended his ascension back into heaven in Acts chapter 1, announcing that in the way that he has gone to heaven, he's going to come back. And we say, Amen, come. They're now serving you and me, mostly in the unseen realm, at Jesus' direction. They've been involved. And yet for all of that, they still have this powerful, intense longing to look ever deeper into our immense, miraculous, undeserved, gracious, forgiving, redeeming, eternal salvation. And they want to know about it. Why? Because it's so great. Why? Because there's one main driving force behind everything that an angel does, and that is to glorify God. And the better they understand our salvation, the more they can glorify God. Because that's what they were made for. The better they understand the grace of God in our lives that saves us, the greater glory they can give to God. Now, that's not a Tim idea this morning, church family. The, the, The Word of God clearly presents that truth. I think of Luke chapter 15, the parable that Jesus tells about the lost coin, the lost son, the the lost sheep. You remember that? That parable? Do you remember that Jesus says in that parable that, that every time one sinner is saved, what does heaven do? It throws a party. Heaven throws a party for every believer in Jesus who comes to faith. So it's throwing parties all the time. The angels are, are partying. And the, and the better they understand our salvation, the harder they get to party. Have you ever thought about that? And, and at the bottom of your note page, we wrap it up with this. In Revelation 5, the Holy Spirit says that the angels sing songs to God. And, and the words to one of those songs that they sing is re- actually recorded for us in Revelation 5, verses 11 and 12. Here's what John says. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's a way of saying a really big number of angels. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In other words, worthy is Jesus who died for the salvation of sinners. Things into which angels long to look. Oh, brother, sister in Jesus, how great is our salvation? How great. Studied by the ancients, 
inspired by the Spirit, proclaimed by the apostles, and intensely focused on by heaven's angels, and brought to our minds by Peter, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit as well, so that no matter how dark the days might get for one who loves Jesus, whether in the 21st century or the 1st century, it doesn't matter, we all remember that our salvation is indeed very, very great. And we will cherish that and celebrate that and know that no one can ever take it from us. Amen? Oh, what a great salvation. Yeah. In fact, you know, I, I just love the way the Holy Spirit orchestrates things in our church life together. Because I can't think of a, a more beautiful way to set us up for this moment of gathering around the table together as a church family than the verses we just shared. This table belongs to all who have experienced salvation. This is a chance for us to celebrate our salvation, to declare that it is very great. The bread that we will share together, a reminder of the body of Jesus, which bore our sin debt for us, the suffering. The cup, a reminder of his blood poured out. The atoning sacrifice that, that washes us clean of every sin and allows God to save us. We get to celebrate our salvation in this moment. This moment is reserved for those who have a personal relationship with Jesus today. If, if that is still a place where you are, you're not sure if Jesus is savior for you or not then it would be better for you not to participate in this part of the service scripture warns about that don't do that if you don't know jesus don't do that if you know him today this is your time to celebrate your salvation so let's pray together and then when brandon and crystal come back on the platform and begin to play that would be your cue to uh, come forward Serve yourselves, take the elements back to your seat and hold them. And just talk with your Lord about your salvation and then we'll partake together as a church family. Let's pray in this moment. Oh, thank you for the riches of your word, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for imparting to the prophets and to the apostles the truths that we, we just cherish in this moment today. And, and thank you for, for letting us just... Uh, Think about the angels for a moment who are watching this scene unfold right now, looking into it, trying to better understand what it means for a sinner to be saved. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. And all God's people said, amen and amen.